Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze, and today I got a really cool guest with us. His name is Mr. Hugh Ross. He is a researcher that deals in astronomy. Astronomy. He used to work at Caltech, working... What was it you worked at at Caltech again? Yeah, I was doing, I was a research fellow on uh, doing research on quasars and galaxies. Right, quasars and galaxies. Uh, and he has uh, graciously offered to come and uh, talk about astronomy and how actually astronomy points to the God of the Bible. Really? Is that even possible? So, Hugh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Give the audience a little bit about, you know, a little bit of your background and how you came to faith, that sort of thing. I was born, raised, and educated in Canada. It was at age seven that I became really interested in astronomy. I wanted to know why the stars were hot. My parents told me to go to the library, and starting from the age of seven, I would bring home about five books on astronomy and physics per week. After a few years of that intense study of astronomy, I realized the universe must have a beginning. Uh, That became clear to me by age 16. And I said, if the universe has a beginning, there must be a beginner. And I began to look look for that beginner, first in the writings of Immanuel Kant and René Descartes. uh, But I discovered they had the wrong concepts of space and time. And starting at age 17, I began to look at the different holy books that undergird the world's religions, and over a two-year period, uh, put those books to a scientific and historical test, and quickly discovered only the Bible really passes the test of being accurate in everything it says about history, science, and geography. That was the only book uh, that accurately predicted future scientific discoveries and historical events. And so it was at age 19 that I signed my name in the back of a Gideon Bible, giving my life to Jesus Christ. Uh, I tried to find Christians in Canadian churches. That didn't go very well. Um, But when I arrived at Caltech to do postdoctoral research, that's where I met Christians, serious Christians. They helped me to find a church. I got involved in a church not too far from Caltech. A few months later, they put me on the pastoral staff as their Minister of Evangelism and Missions, and it was that church that helped me launch the organization Reasons to Believe, Mm -hmm. an organization that takes top academics uh, out of the different uh, universities, and we set them free to do interdisciplinary research, research of looking at the book of nature comprehensively to develop new evidences, new proofs that the God of the Bible is the one that created the universe and designed it specifically so that billions of us humans could come into a redemptive relationship with the creator of the universe. You said something that kind of piqued my interest, Larry. You said that the Bible has predicted future science. You want to kind of elaborate elaborate on that one? Because that's kind of a high claim, don't you think? In the Canadian public education system, the scientific method was drilled into me. Grade one, grade two, we got it every year. But Mm -hmm. none of our teachers told us where the scientific method came from. And when I first picked up a Bible, the scientific method literally leapt off the page of Genesis 1. How so? Well, I mean, step one of the scientific method 
don't interpret until you establish the frame of reference. Step two, don't interpret until you establish the starting conditions. Well, what you see in Genesis 1-2, it tells you the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters of planet Earth, telling us we're to interpret the six days of creation from the perspective of an observer on the surface of Earth's waters. Then it gives you four starting conditions. Water covers the whole surface of the Earth. It's dark all over the surface of the Earth. And the Earth is formless and void. It's empty of life and unfit for life. And from that perspective, when I looked at the six creation days, I recognized that every event is correctly described and they're all in the correct chronological sequence. And I recognized that was way beyond the science that was available to Moses. And it's really only been in the 20th century we've been able to scientifically prove that Genesis got it right in the description of the creation events and got it right in putting them in the right chronological sequence. The other thing that impressed me going through the Bible is that the Bible thousands of years ago declared all the fundamental attributes of what we call Big Bang cosmology, how the universe comes from a space-time beginning, how it continuously expands from that beginning under laws of physics that never change, where one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. And having been a student of astronomy since I was seven, I realized no book uh, outside of the Bible made those claims until the 20th century. So for thousands of years, for example, the Bible stood alone in declaring that we live in a universe that continuously expands from a space-time beginning. There's a couple of different things you're going to have to clarify here. When you're talking about a space-time beginning, you're saying there is a point in which we can definitely prove that the universe began. Yes. Okay. And what do you mean about this law of decay? Because you don't hear about that in public school science, science books. I mean, they want to tell you that everything happened in a big bang or something like that. When you talk about a law of decay, what are you referring to? Well, in science, we call it the second law of thermodynamics, or we call it entropy. Late people call it Murphy's Law. But what you see in the book of Ecclesiastes and Romans and several other places in the Bible is that everything in the universe is undergoing continual decay. And I tell people when I speak on this, if you don't believe it, look at one another. We're all evidence that everything is decaying with respect to time. And, uh, you know, Romans 8 says the entire universe is subject to this pervasive law of decay. But what I realized at age 17, that the Bible is saying that the universe comes from a space-time beginning, where everything is subject to this pervasive law of decay, and this law doesn't change, and the universe is expanding, that means the universe gets older, colder, and colder as it gets older and older. Because any system that expands under thermodynamics gets colder. And I said, that's the Big Bang. The idea that the universe started off near infinitely hot and has been cooling since it's been expanding. In fact, if you know the age of the universe, you can actually produce a biblically predicted cooling curve for the universe. And in my latest book, The Crater and the Cosmos, I show people that biblically predicted cosmic cooling curve. But I overlap that with 14 measurements we astronomers have made of the past temperature of the universe. And it's dramatic. Those measurements perfectly fit the biblically predicted cooling curve for the universe. Why is, is the fact that the universe is expanding such a big deal? 
Well, it's a big deal, number one. If it wasn't expanding, there would be no possibility for life. But I think theologically, the fact that 11 times in the Bible, it tells us that the universe is expanding. And the fact that no scientist even hinted at that until uh, 1925. And so literally for thousands of years, the Bible stood alone in six different books of the Bible in declaring that we live in a continuously expanding universe counter to all the competing cosmologies. But now we have the physical evidence that proves that the Bible got it right. So what you're saying is not only do we have the universe expanding, but we also have this element of decay within the universe. And and, and in that respect, you're talking about sun and stars that are dying, correct? Well, everything. Everything is subject to decay. I mean, if you uh, fix up your backyard, uh, just wait a few weeks and it won't be as fixed up as it was uh, last time. It's it's subject (laughs) to decay. Uh, We're all getting older. Our cars rust out. Everything is decaying. Uh, Hmm. But the Bible tells us that this is a law that God imposed upon the whole universe. And what's interesting, Romans 8 makes a point that law will remain in effect until the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have been redeemed, which basically makes the point that this law of decay is there to deal with sin and evil. And once Hmm. evil has been taken care of, no longer is a need for decay. And you see that in Revelation 21. In the new creation, there will be no decay. Nothing will die. Nothing will decay. Nothing will need to be maintained because nothing's going to wear out. I mean, didn't God kind of hint at this when he gave the children of Israel garments that did not wear out when they were in the wilderness? He did. He he supernaturally intervened uh, so that their garments wouldn't wear out during those 38 years. But notice, once they're in the promised land, once again, that law decay uh, took effect. Hmm. Now, you said also that the Bible is historically yeah, historically accurate. Can you kind of go into uh, some details on that, Frank? Again, I can take you back to my late teen years going through the Bible. And I was particularly impressed uh, with the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel. Because uh, mm-hmm. you got this uh, man, Daniel prophesying that there would be future world empires that would come upon the scene. He names them by name. He puts them in the chronological order. And so, you know, what he wrote uh, you know, in the uh, 6th century BC was that the current Babylonian empire would be overthrown by the Persians and the Persian empire would be overthrown by the Greek empire and the Greek empire would be overthrown by another empire to the west of uh, the Greek empire. And all that happened, exactly as Daniel had predicted. And of course, I was also impressed with Ezekiel's uh, prophecies about what would happen with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel would be born, uh, it would be wiped out, the people of Israel would be scattered all over the world, and they would be without a king or a ruler for a very long period of time, but that God would restore Israel, there would be a second rebirth of the nation of Israel. And the book of Ezekiel uh, and other places in the Bible, too, prophesy in detail the events of this modern nation of Israel. And I realized this is Bible prophecy being fulfilled right in front of my eyes in my own lifetime. I'm seeing texts written in the Bible thousands of years ago being fulfilled right before my eyes. I mean, if someone is, is skeptical and they go, okay, well, maybe the Bible got lucky a couple times. I mean, 
but you can't really expect me to believe that the, just because it got lucky a couple times, it's suddenly the word of Almighty God. Well, I had that uh, impression, too, and I was reading through the Bible seriously for the first time. And I spent two years going through the Bible trying to find a provable error or contradiction, because I found a whole bunch in the other holy books. Mm -hmm. Uh, But after going through the Bible, I realized I can't find a single place in the Bible that I could say is a provable error or contradiction. Now, I'll be honest, there are many passages of the Bible I didn't understand. But that which I did understand, I couldn't find a provable error or contradiction. And I found hundreds of places while I was doing that study where the Bible had accurately predicted future events and future scientific discoveries. And I couldn't document a single place where the Bible was incorrect on any of its predictions. Whereas, for example, uh, when I picked up the other holy books, I was able to find a whole bunch of places uh, where it was clearly... uh, making false uh, predictions of future historical events and scientific discoveries. Can you give an example of some of the false events that you found? Well, uh, I spent some time going through the Mormon scriptures. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there are dozens of places where Joseph Smith, for example, made predictions that uh, clearly did not come true, like that his friend Oliver Cottery would become such a household name that everybody in America would know who he is. Well, the truth is most Mormons don't even know who he is. So uh, that's where they, they got one wrong. And, you know, I could name a few few others as well. Uh, what they said about, you know, scientifically, what the Mormon texts say about Kolob, this planet that's supposed to be in the center of our galaxy. And this is the place uh, where uh, the Messiah came from. And it's the kind of the birthplace of uh, the equivalent of human life. But as an astronomer, I can tell you, that's the most deadly place in our galaxy for life to exist. You're not even going to get a bacterium or a virus existing there, let alone anything equivalent to a human being. That's interesting. I didn't even know that they believed that. <laughs> okay, well, um, back to astronomy. Let's, let's kind of shift gears. and Because one of the biggest arguments that I know is, and, and I know it's especially within the academic community, uh, I grew up in a high school, and they shoved evolution down my throat, you know? And I know a lot of people could pretty much say the same thing. So the question I have is, how can you 100% be sure that we came from a creator and didn't come from some evolved whatever? That's part of my story, too, is that my parents, when I was growing up, were concerned that I was being obsessive about my studies in astronomy and physics. When I was about 10 and a half, they bought our family this big, thick book on evolutionary biology. And I was the only one in the family that read through it. I remember telling my parents, Mom, Dad, the numbers don't add up. We got all the speciation before humanity and hardly any afterwards. Can you tell me why? They said, go ask your science teachers. My science teachers told me to go to the university. Uh, I wasn't getting any good answers, but the first time I picked up Genesis 1, I got an answer to the fossil record enigma. The reason we see all the speciation before humanity, those are the six days in which God creates when he supernaturally intervenes to bring new species of life upon the terrestrial scene. But the seventh day, the human era, is that period when God ceases from his work of creation. So all we see today is the natural process. 
I think the problem with a lot of our public education is you've got these biology textbooks written by individuals whose research is focused on studying life that exists in the human era. And that's the era in which God does not supernaturally intervene. So they say it's all natural process. They extrapolate for the human era all the way back to the beginning of the origin of life. And so what we've done in the public schools is to say, we're not saying throw at your biology textbooks. Most of what's in there, uh, we think, is really good material. However, the chapter you got there in The Origin of Life, not only is it out of date, it's simply not correct. But we've got a whole book on The Origin of Life, and it's even been endorsed uh, by an atheist Origin of Life researcher. We would recommend that you use this as a supplement uh, to correct uh, that faulty chapter. And then we got another book, Who is Adam, uh, that deals with human origins. What we're trying to do is help the public schools supplement uh, the material that they got uh, so that students don't get this false impression that the biology today applies to the entire record of life on planet Earth. It doesn't. And in my most, uh, one of my more recent books, Improbable Planet, I make the point that you have to take into account the changing physics of the sun. The sun today is 23% brighter than it was at the time of the origin of light. Because what drives the non-theistic evolutionary paradigm is they say, look at all these extinction events and speciation events. But yet what, what, do you mean, what do you mean by speciation? You've used that word a couple of times. Uh, that's bringing into existence a new life form. Okay. Uh, so it'd be a new genus, a new species of life, a new phylum of life some new life form that didn't exist before. Okay, and, uh, I follow I don't. Okay. <laughs> but when you look at the fossil record, you do see these incidences where literally uh, three quarters of all the life on planet Earth is wiped out, and then you get a mass speciation event where millions of new species suddenly appear altogether. You right. see repeatedly throughout the history of life, but that's exactly what you'd expect from the God of the Bible. It actually says this in Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30. It's a property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. Because God steps in and removes life and replaces it with new life that's more efficient than pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So as the sun is getting progressively brighter and brighter, God is removing life and replacing that life with life forms that are progressively more and more efficient and drawing greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere so that the temperature on the surface of the earth remains optimal for life. And what I tell my friends who are evolutionists, only a mind that knows the future physics of the earth, the sun, and the moon is going to know which life forms to take away from the earth and which new life forms to replace those with. But if you actually look at the fossil record in detail, one of the amazing things you see there, each of these mass speciation events where you suddenly get a wholesale replacement of new life forms, they're immediately optimized in their ecological relationships. In other words, the relationships between the predators, uh, the carnivore, pardon me, the carnivores, the herbivores, the parasites, and the detritivores, it's not a slow movement towards optimization. They're optimized immediately. And you see that repeatedly throughout the fossil record. Again, that's something you'd expect uh, from a supernatural, super intelligent creator 
a non-theistic model would never predict that you're going to get immediately optimized ecological relationships. But that's exactly what we see. If you think about when they talk about the evolutionary model, not only do they talk about the Big Bang, not only do they then say, hey, we came from a bunch of goop, which is, as I recall, that's the whole idea of evolution, came from a bunch of goop and kind of evolved into this, let me think, was it reptiles or monkeys first? I don't even recall. <laughs> they, they've they tried to sit there and say that there's proof for some of these things. Well, and proof for is that, you know, the first life forms are microbes. And for the first three billion years of life history in planet Earth, that's all you get, microbes or colonies of microbes. And that's actually crucial because these microbes transform the chemistry of the Earth and the chemistry of our atmosphere to make it possible for advanced plants and, and animals. And But when you see the advanced plants and animals, uh, they start off primitive and they become progressive. So people are saying, we see a progression. And that progression, they assume, is somewhat linear, and therefore they think it's natural. What they're failing to realize is that that progression is exactly what you need to compensate for the brightening of the sun and to prepare the planet for the eventual entry of human beings. And so literally every life form you see in the entire history of life plays a critical role in making it possible for us human beings to exist today. And that's one of the things I wrote in my book, Improbable Planet. When you actually look at what humanity needs to launch civilization, the time window in which we can live is extremely narrow. We're only talking a few tens of thousands of years. And the resources we need are monumental. Uh, you know, we need north of 75 quadrillion tons of biodeposits to sustain our civilization. And from that perspective, you realize this long history of life, and where we see this sequence of mass extinction events and mass speciation events, every bit of it is necessary to make possible the existence of human beings. But you made a good point about the origin of life. You know, when people tell me we don't think God's involved in this, let me take you back to the simplest problem for you to solve. How do you get the chemicals of the early life to evolve into a simple bacterium? And that's why we wrote a book on this subject, Origins of Life, basically making the point there is no non-theistic explanation for the origin of life. Uh, so, for example, uh, we have no source of amino acids where all the amino acids are left-handed. We have no natural source of the ribose sugars, which all must be right-handed. I mean, if you don't have an exclusively right-handed uh, sample of uh, these pentose sugars, you're not going to get DNA and RNA. And if all the amino acids are not left-handed in their configuration, you're not going to get proteins. We don't even have a naturalistic answer for where the building blocks of life come from, let alone where life comes from. Do you honestly believe then that the time period in which the Earth was created is only like, do you believe in a, a, what some would call a young Earth? No, I'm not a young Earth creationist. I'm an old Earth creationist. Okay, what's the difference? The difference is that uh, the young earth creationists interpret the creation days in Genesis 1 as six consecutive 24-hour periods, mm-hmm. whereas we old earth creationists interpret it as six consecutive long periods of time. You know, I tell people, I saw this the very first time I opened up a Bible, is when you look at Genesis, 
you notice that this word day must have at least three distinct literal definitions, because three are used right there in the text. Creation day one, it contrasts days and nights. So that's day referring to the daylight hours. Creation day four, it contrasts seasons, days, and years. That's day referring to 24 hours. And Genesis 2-4 uses that word day to refer to all of creation history. So that's day as a long period of time. Uh, But what I notice at age 17 is that you have closure on the first six creation days. Those first six days have an evening and a morning, which means each day is a definite start point and a definite end point. But notice there's no evening and morning for the seventh day. Mm. And I also notice there are three texts in the Bible, Psalm 95, John 5, and Hebrews 4, that tell us we're still in God's seventh day. It's not yet finished, and it won't be completed until evil and suffering have been conquered and eliminated. And the full number of humans that God wants to redeem have been redeemed. So there's so then, a time of creation, but it won't happen until after evil is conquered. So then under the old earth uh, idea, how old would you say the earth really is? We've been able to measure that with high precision. It's 4.5662 billion years, plus or minus 0.0001 billion. So we've actually been able to measure it to five places of the decimal. With the universe, we only have four decimal point precision, 13.79 billion, plus or minus 0.05 billion. Okay, so so in that respect, you actually agree with the evolutionists regarding billions of years. You're just differentiating between, hey, this didn't happen by accident. This actually has an intelligent creator. Yeah, you've got that right. I mean, uh, we think that uh, the biology textbooks that are used in the public schools, the data is correct. So we don't dispute the time scale. We don't dispute the fossil record. We don't dispute the data about the mass extinction, mass speciation events. Our dispute is with the interpretation of that data. Uh, we think they've mistakenly assumed that all this can happen by natural process when it's quite clear scientifically, not just biblically, but scientifically, Uh, that you need a supernatural, super-intelligent creator who has a goal of transforming Earth into a realm where we humans can launch civilization. If someone is listening and they're hearing this and maybe they're kind of going, okay, you're way over my head, what can they take away from this? I mean, we have a team of research scientists here, but we also have a team of translators. My wife is uh, an ex-English professor, and she heads up a team of uh, editors who take the material our scientists write and translate it so lay people can understand it. And so, yeah, we have over 20 books that we make available on these subjects that you can get at reasons.org. A lot of this science is accessible to anyone. In fact, in many respects, I argue that people living thousands of years ago, uh, compared to people allowed, allowed alive today, are better educated in science in some areas. Because it was Job, for example, who said, look to the birds, they'll teach you. Look to the beasts of the field, they'll instruct you. And the problem today is because so many of us live in big, densely populated cities, we're cut off from contact with wild birds and wild mammals. And we're not getting the spiritual lessons from these animals that people living thousands of years ago 
routinely saw. And so, I mean, in fact, I encourage people, you need to go out into the wilderness uh, where there's not a lot of people around and see how animals behave that have never been abused by human beings. And you mm-hmm. get to see that what Job said is true. God designed them to come to us, to relate to us, and to serve and please us. And But notice, we're a higher species. They're designed to relate and serve and please a higher species. Likewise, we're designed to relate and serve a higher being. And as our sin causes these animals to run away from us instead of towards us, it's our sin that causes us to run away from God instead of toward him or to pretend that he doesn't exist. Notice, too, it takes a higher being to tame these animals. Likewise, it takes a higher being to tame a human being. That's just one of over a half dozen different lessons, spiritual lessons, that God designed these animals to teach us human beings. And I think that explains why people who live out in nature uh, have a much lower incidence of atheism, agnosticism, than people who live in cities. Before I was a Christian, one of my biggest arguments, and I didn't know any better, but one of my biggest arguments uh, was, don't talk to me about your God until you can prove he exists. When I said that, I said that mainly out of anger towards him. And I would guess, and this is just a guess, uh, you can, you're, you're free to, you know, if, if I'm wrong, tell me. But I would guess that most of the people that claim he doesn't exist only do that because they don't want to acknowledge him. Because if they acknowledge him, then they have to acknowledge either their anger towards him or their own issues. Well, that is true. There are quite a few atheists and agnostics that are in that category. Uh, but I meet a whole lot of people who simply don't know. As it says in Hebrews 11.6, anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that just say, I need to see the evidence. And so that's what we do at Reasons to Believe, is provide people with actual tangible evidence that God exists. And we're not just talking any kind of God. It's a God that means good things for those people that seek him. So it's a good God a God that's got a plan for your life. And so there was a time, say, 50 years ago, and most Americans believe that. Uh, but as I speak to young people today, especially, I find that most of them say, I'd like to believe that, but I need evidence. And so we're providing them with that evidence. And in my own discipline of astrophysics, this is where we're seeing the most compelling and rigorous scientific evidences that a God beyond space and time must have created the universe and designed it for the specific benefit of human beings. Wow. So let's say, let's say someone comes to the point where they say, okay, there is a God. Um, you've proven that point. I mean, there's clearly something. What do I do with it? Where do I go from there? Well, once someone understands that uh, God does exist and that it's a good God, then I ask them to look within because it tells us in Romans 2, God has written his moral law on the heart of every human being. We all have a conscience. You know, how well are you doing living up to the standards of your conscience? We all fall short of trying to meet up to our conscience. But there's an all-powerful God out there, an all-powerful God we can see from the scientific evidence. And it's a God that knows everything. 
And it's a God who has a deep love for humanity. Look at all he's done in our behalf. That God and his great power, love, knowledge, and wisdom must have provided a way for us to deal with the issue of us falling short of our moral standard. Mm. And I tell people that's really the Christian message, how the creator of the universe loved us so much. He came here to earth, lived a life of moral perfection in front of us so we could see what a life of moral perfection is like. But he wound up dying on the cross and being raised bodily from the dead and so he could make an offer to trade his moral perfection for our moral imperfection. We could be delivered uh, from all of our past offenses of God and of other people and our future offenses as well and enter into an eternal loving relationship with the Creator. But it all begins with understanding that such a good, all-powerful God exists and that we've got a problem. Uh, We can't satisfy the demands of this perfect, morally perfect, holy God, but he is there to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Uh, You know, it's, but, and if someone doesn't, what if someone says, hey, you know what, that's great, uh, but I want, I don't, I don't want to deal with him. Well, you have that choice. God does not force people to spend eternity with him. He says, I've made an offer, and if you want to be delivered from your moral imperfection, there is a way that can happen. If you don't want to be delivered and want nothing to do with me, that's your choice. So God made his free will beings. And, uh, you know, after you die, there are two places. One where you get to spend eternity uh, in a relationship with the creator of the universe, and one where you never have to spend any moment with him at all for the rest of eternity. It's your choice. And that would be heaven or hell. And that's a, that's right. a, that's a hard, hard line to, to draw. I, I mean, it's, but it's, it's true. You know, it, it really is true, guys. Um, well, it's and, not hard in this sense. God doesn't send people to hell. People choose hell. If an individual uh, despises God and wants nothing to do with him, then God says, I got a place for you where I'll never visit you. I'll give you what you desire. I, I, I couldn't even imagine, honestly, making that choice. I really couldn't. What does someone have to do in order to make that choice? Well, they first have to recognize that uh, God really does exist and uh, that we're talking a God that's all-powerful, all-loving, all-wise, all-knowledgeable. You have to acknowledge that, uh, hey, I've got a problem. There's a law written on my heart, and no matter how hard I try, I can't live up to those standards. This is a God that's all-holy. He doesn't grade on a curve, and I fall short of the standard of moral perfection. But yes, in his great love and great power and great wisdom, He's provided a way. And therefore, since I can't do it and he's willing to do it, I'm going to accept what I can't do for myself. Mm. And, you know, I realize, too, that uh, Jesus knows better than I do what's best for me. It only makes rational sense to put him in charge of my life because he knows what's best for me. And so I commit myself to follow his direction. I make him the master of my life because I know that's what's going to benefit me. And so becoming a Christian is not only asking God to save you from your imperfection, it's making him the Lord over your life, recognizing he's the one that's in the best place uh, to govern and rule your life. And you know that's what's going to actually set you free. And of course, it doesn't happen all at once. What we learn in uh, the New Testament is that once you make that commitment 
to make Jesus the master of your life and the savior of your life, that's when God sends the Holy Spirit to give you step-by-step the power and the desire to live the Christian life. And so I tell people who doubt whether or not they're a Christian, what kind of changes are you seeing in your desires and your powers in the context of what you used to battle? And if that's going on, I say, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's within you, and he will bring you to a point of perfection, but it's going to be in his timing, and it won't be complete in this life. That's, that's an, incredible, uh, an incredible offer, really. Well, um, it says in Hebrews 2, uh, if you really understand the offer, who in his right mind would turn down such a magnificent offer of salvation? I, yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's just incredible. I guess in wrapping up, do you have anything that you want to offer our audience? Well, I just came out with a fourth edition of The Creator and the Cosmos. It's a book that I write on the best scientific evidences uh, for God and the Christian faith. The reason why there's four editions over the past 25 years, I wanted to demonstrate the biblical principle that you see in Job and Psalms, that the more we learn about nature, the more evidences we uncover for the supernatural handiwork of God. And this latest edition's got 80 new pages of content because the evidence has exploded in the last few years. Mm. And we're actually giving away chapter 12 for free. Uh, if you go to reasons.org slash cc, uh, you can get that free chapter. It's a chapter I wrote on Stephen Hawking and his amazing discovery, the space-time theorems that establishes there must be a God beyond space and time. Uh, I explained why he rejected that implication, but give him credit for coming up with one of the most significant uh, theorems that establishes the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible and the Christian faith. And uh, you can actually see a tribute that I wrote because Stephen Hawking recently passed away. I had some personal contact with him when I was at Caltech. So on my Facebook page, you'll see a tribute there. And I do answer questions that people give me on both my Facebook and Twitter pages. But that free chapter, reasons.org slash cc. Wonderful, wonderful. And where, and where can people contact you? Well, reasons.org is our website. And uh, yeah, if they put my name in, Hugh Ross Facebook or Hugh Ross Twitter, that'll bring up my Facebook and Twitter pages. And yes, they're welcome to ask me questions. Wonderful. Well, guys, this has been, uh, I won't say that I followed everything because I am definitely not uh, scientific, but this has been an incredible, incredible podcast. I've enjoyed every single bit of it. And if you have any questions at all, uh, what he offered and what he explained regarding the salvation message, he is to- he, he, you are just totally right on, my friend. And if anyone has any questions about the Christian faith, please feel free to contact me, Teresa at unresolved.life. And if this has been useful, please share it. Share it. And if you don't mind reading, leaving a uh, rate, Subscribe, rate, and review it. That would be wonderful so that others can find this content and maybe maybe we can start turning things around. But Hugh, thank you so much for coming on the Unresolved Life uh, podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.